The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center's lecture podcast series are given live to an audience of soldiers and the public and provide insight into leadership and warfighting from scholars and soldiers, helping us tell the Army's story one soldier at a time. Our lectures often include important visuals. To view video of this lecture and many others, please visit the USAHEC channel on YouTube. The opinions and statements of the speakers featured on this podcast are not necessarily the views of the United States Army or the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center. Ladies and gentlemen, today is October 16th, 2019, and on behalf of the director of the U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center, Mr. Jeffrey Mangelsdorf, and the entire staff here at the AHEC and the U.S. Army War College, welcome to the Perspectives in Military History Lecture Series. Tonight, uh, is the final lecture of the 2019 Perspectives of Military History Lecture Series. The series will start again in 2020 for its 51st year. Now that doesn't mean this is the end of the lectures for the year. We still have another one in November. Um, but uh, we are finishing up tonight with our 50th year of the uh, Perspective Series. Uh, as always, the AHEC and the War College sponsor the Perspective Series to provide a historical dimension to the exercise of generalship, strategic leadership, and the institution, the warfighting institutions of land power. Uh, and as always, we like to extend a warm thank you to the Army Heritage Center Foundation for everything they do to support these lectures uh, and other things we do here at the AHEC. I'd like to, it's my great honor, of course, to introduce today's speaker. Mr. Brandon Bies is the superintendent of the Manassas National Battlefield Park and has managed the park since March 2017. Before leading the team at Manassas, he served as the legislative coordinator for the National Capital Region of the National Park Service. Mr. Bies was also the site manager of Arlington House, the Robert E. Lee Memorial, where he oversaw planning for $12.35 million rehabilitation made possible by philanthropist David Rubenstein. Mr. Bies began his work in national parks as an archaeologist at Monocacy National Battlefield and was the cultural resource specialist at George Washington Memorial Parkway and the site manager for Great Falls Park. He holds a bachelor's degree in American history and anthropology and a master's degree in applied anthropology. Ladies and gentlemen, please help me welcome Superintendent Brandon Byes. It's all right. That's cool. <laughs> Great. Thanks, Carl. I'm really happy to be here tonight to talk about one of the um, more amazing stories that I've had the opportunity to share in my time in the National Park Service. Um, this, is, uh, this is, without a doubt, one of the neatest projects I've gotten to work on, and I come to you today uh, wearing kind of two hats at the same time. Uh, one of those is as the superintendent of Anastas Battlefield, where I get to make all those fun superintendent decisions about how do we share these stories and how do we allocate funds to tell these stories and how do we work out sometimes controversial decisions about what do you do when you unexpectedly make an unprecedented discovery, in this case, of the remains of American service members. And I also wear, come wearing the hat as a military archeologist. As Carl mentioned, uh, my background, my education, my start in the Park Service uh, is as a uh, military archeologist, specifically studying the American Civil War. Um, I was not superintendent at Manassas. I was not working at Manassas when this discovery was made that I'm gonna talk about tonight. Um, I, was, uh, I was doing congressional legislative affairs uh, downtown in D.C. for the Park Service 
um, when fortunately, because of my, uh, my background in military archaeology, I, uh, I was asked to come out to the site and to, to assist. So I can come to you tonight talking as the manager uh, who's dealing with this discovery and how do we share and tell the story, uh, but also as somebody who is actually there um, working on the excavations. So a little bit about Manassas National Battlefield Park. Um, also run, known as the Bull Run Battlefield. Um, it's, a, it's a neat place. It's a uh, difficult place to talk about the Civil War and what happened there because we had not one, but two battles that took place there 13 months apart from each other. As most people uh, are likely aware, uh, the first real land battle of the American Civil War, the Battle of Bull Run, uh, or Manassas, uh, was fought on July 21st, 1861. And at the time it was fought, it was the largest battle fought in the entire Western Hemisphere. So just put that in perspective for a moment. It, the first battle of the Civil War, which by later standards was almost like a large skirmish compared to what later happened, battles like Gettysburg, Antietam, um, Shiloh, other battles, dwarfed the first battle, yet at the time the first battle was fought, both sides, north and south, thought this was going to be one and done. Just, they both they were, going to, they were going to win and go home, and that was going to be it. And it couldn't be further from the truth. First of all, the Confederacy won uh, that battle, and it was a very costly battle for both sides. And so with 800 soldiers killed total, that was far larger than any battle that was fought in the Revolutionary War, the War of 1812, anything in the Western Hemisphere up until that time. Thirteen months later was the second battle in August of 1862, and that was four times the size of the first battle. And at the time it was fought, it became the largest battle fought in the Western Hemisphere at its time. Of course, it was eclipsed a short three weeks later by the Battle of Antietam. Between these two battles, both resounding Confederate victories, there were a total of 4,000 American soldiers, north and south, who were killed. And there were tens of thousands of soldiers who were wounded, maimed, taken prisoner during those two battles. Those are some pretty powerful statistics when you look at the sheer numbers of those two battles that took place there. And it's important, though, for us to not get too hung up in the statistics. And tonight, we're going to talk about a story. We're going to talk about what this discovery can tell us and we're going to try to tell the stories of some of the individuals behind those statistics, those individuals who did not make it home or did not make it home in one piece. And so that is what we're going to spend about the next 50 or 60 minutes talking about. So in the National Park Service, we are, I like to think, great storytellers. Uh, we, uh, we like to build up lots of suspense and build it up and bring you on to the very, very end so you're paying attention the whole time. But I'm not going to do that. I am going to show you a short two-minute video that is going to package this whole story into two minutes, I think, very powerfully from beginning to end, and then we're going to dive into the detail. So with that, if we could go ahead and, and play the movie. See, 
This is a project that was so illuminating in terms of what it can tell us about events at Manassas Battlefield, the lives of these men, who they are, and also a story of the surgeons that tried to help them. There's a lot of choices that those surgeons had to make when they realized that they were left and supplies were not coming in and they basically had to fend for themselves along with thousands of wounded. Because of the research that has been done, we can start to have a personal side, a personal connection to these soldiers and these remains. So instead of some bones, you're looking at somebody who was between 30 and 34 years old and was from the state of New York. That person may have had a wife, may have children, and it makes it a much more personal story for us and for us to share. So this is a really powerful story, and tonight we're going to get into great detail about some really neat scientific stuff, and we're going to talk about bullets and how they fractured bones certain ways and how we could use scientific instruments to figure out a little bit about these soldiers and what happened to them. And I'm going to get pretty excited because I love this stuff. But at the same time, it's really important to remember that we are talking about the remains of American service members uh, who, in some cases, did not make it home. And so just keep that in the back of your minds as you get excited about the science behind this, um, that this was, um, this was uh, life or death. And for a few of these individuals, it was death uh, for the who we're going to be talking about tonight. So with that, some ground rules. First of all, Please don't ask me when we do the questions and the end here, where on the battlefield we found these soldiers' remains, because I can't tell you. The reason I can't tell you is for a couple of reasons. Unfortunately, the National Park Service has very real threats and concerns of unscrupulous folks, illegal relic hunters that come in and, and like to dig up buried treasure. And unfortunately, Graves sometimes are, this, are the source of those materials. This discovery was made, these soldiers were buried 10 inches below the surface. So it's very, very shallow. And so for that reason, uh, we cannot reveal where this was, was because also we believe that there are still skeletal remains in the ground at this location. And so we need to safeguard that until we make a final decision of what we're going to do, if we're going to go back, complete excavations, um, if we're going to mark this site somehow. So I can't talk about the specific location. And again, the other ground rule here is you're going to be seeing pictures, as you just did, of skeletal remains of American soldiers. And so, you know, there's pictures on our website. You're going to see this here today. But please don't, don't, don't talking about this in a certain context, right, in the full story. Don't take a picture of, of a soldier's femur and then put it up on your social media page as your profile or something silly like that. Just, I, I have to say that. But in this day and age, you don't know. So just 
presentation as you would the respect that is, that is due these soldiers. So with that, how did we get here? After all, the National Park Service is not in... Unfortunately, I've been told that we cannot dim the lights um, because it's critical for, I guess it's either, either on or off, and if they're off, you can't see me. And now if I had my druthers, I'd say these pictures are probably more important than me, but sorry, we, we can't do that. Um, so how did we get to this point? So the, uh, the National Park Service, after all, is not in the business of going out and excavating human remains on battlefields. That's not what we do. That's not our mission. One of the reasons why these battlefields is so incredibly hallowed and important is because it is the final resting place these battlefields of the National Park Service stewards, the final resting place of tens of thousands of soldiers are still left there on these battlefields. And so that is why these battlefields are important. We do not go seeking these discoveries. But in this case, we kind of stumbled upon it. So the National Park Service at the battlefield uh, had to put in a new utility line. And before we do that, as we do in the National Park Service, and especially in battlefields, we do archaeology in advance. We want to make sure that we don't accidentally disturb something. And so archaeologists came out. They, uh, they did what are called shovel test pits, which are exactly what they sound like. Small little shovel holes dug down along the course of this utility line. They did a metal detector survey. And you know they, they did find some odds and ends. But ultimately, the recommendation was to move forward with, with the project, it, nothing that would keep it from going forward, but have an archaeologist there on site monitoring, watching just to see in case something unexpected should, should, should show up. So we did our due diligence in advance, and nothing significant out of the ordinary was found. The other recommendation, though, made by the archaeologist who did that preliminary testing was to excavate the narrowest trench you possibly could. So the Park Service staff used a one foot wide backhoe bucket. So that's really skinny, right? We're talking about a backhoe bucket that's only this wide. And so you can actually see in this bottom image what that narrow trench looked like. And so again, when we were doing the initial archeology, span the archeologists found some of the types of artifacts you would expect to find. Domestic artifacts from maybe an old house site. Uh, you see up here images of old glassware, some ceramic dishes, and then expected pieces of militaria, bullets, buckles, things that you would see strewn about a battlefield. Um, but nothing that really made them think that, um, that, that so there was anything more significant at that location. And so the work progressed, and the backhoe started digging. And all of a sudden, after a few scoops came out into this pile of dirt, one or two scoops came full of a couple of hundred fragments of bone. Very, very, very small pieces of bone. We're talking about pieces of bone that were almost the size of the eraser on the head of a pencil. And there were a couple hundred of them. So they stopped, went down, looked, saw that whatever it was had been cut through already. You know, the damage was done per se. And again, how come that, why did this happen? Well, again, that preliminary archeology span that was done, in, there's no way to know you're never going to hit anything unless you dig it all in advance in the beginning. So that testing strategy, well, I'll show you later just how close it, it came to, to missing this completely. Um, turns out the backhoe had just nicked the very edge of this, what turned out to be a surgeon's pit. And so these bones were collected, and they were taken back to the lab that the National Park Service has. 
Because at the time, believe it or not, we did not know, we did not fully expect that these were necessarily human bones. This is an agricultural setting. There were dairy farms on the park and on the battlefield afterwards. These little tiny fragments they could have been or a horse or a pig or something like that. So they were taken back to our lab. And the archaeologists in the lab cleaned them off and said, hmm, these look like they could be human. So at that point, we worked with our very close colleagues, and you met a few of them in this video that kicked this off, at the Smithsonian Institution and the, American, the National Museum of Natural History. These are the nation's leading forensic pathologists. These are folks, they have done amazing work. They are the ones that go down to colonial Jamestown and unseal a coffin and sample the air for the first time in 400 years and those, that kind of work. Well, the National Park Service has a tremendous relationship uh, 30 years or 40 years, anytime human skeletal remains are found in a national park, anywhere within a few hundred miles of DC, this is who we work with. And so we took it to them and they presented us with this. This is a reassembled shaft of a human leg bone, a femur. This particular femur has been reconstructed. So they took these 200 tiny puzzle piece bone fragments and were able from all, all jumbled together. And they were able to figure out that we had before us the limbs of at least four individuals two of which had cut marks, like this one that you see here, a very clear cut mark on it. And so human bones that have been severed with saws on a battlefield tells you this is almost certainly the remains of a amputation site, a surgeon's pit, a limb pit, something like that. This was incredibly significant. Because believe it or not, for those of you who are interested in the Civil War, who have read about the Civil War, you have likely read many accounts of these field hospitals spread out on the battlefields, amputating limb after limb. Believe it or not, there has never ever been a pit of amputated limbs discovered on an actual Civil War battlefield. You would think that there would be hundreds and hundreds of these out there. Never before has something like this ever been discovered. So it's a pretty big deal. And so the National Park Service decided with this information, again, that we felt that we were dealing with a, with a surgeon's limb pit. And since this had not been discovered before, and since the National Park Service needed to be very careful that in future work in the park, we didn't accidentally damage this again, the decision was made to go back to the site. So this initial discovery by the backhoe was done in October of 2014. So a year later, the Park Service went back to the site in, 2000, in October of 2015 with the intention of trying to determine what was this? What was the size of it? How deep was it? What did it look like? You know, but not with the intention necessarily of going and digging everything up. That's, that's not our preservation strategy. We wanted to document it, photograph it, and then likely rebury it. So with that, again, October 2015, Park Service teamed with forensic archaeologists and anthropologists from the Smithsonian, went out to the site, and began conducting those excavations. Now, as archaeology seems to always work, you never find anything until the last day. So the plan was to work 
for five days out on site. We had, we had a team of archaeologists, and this was before I was even asked to, to come out to the site. Um, there was a team of Park Service archaeologists and then some contractors who worked with the Park Service were out there. Because again, this was a, this was a long kind of backhoe trench, and they, had, they didn't know exactly where it came from within there. So they had to sample a number of locations with these kind of, you know, very deliberate, very slow, you know, digging with a trowel and a brush archaeology. So three days go by, and they didn't find anything. And it was midway through, I believe, the fourth day that they began finding things. And this is a little bit of, of, of what they found. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to walk around a little bit and try to use the, uh, try to use the laser pointer here. There we go. Uh, so if you look carefully at these images, I recognize it's a little difficult to see. And I'll highlight both of these. Um, on the bottom here, you have an area of disturbance, some, some, some torn up ground right there. And I'm talking about this right down here. That is that backhoe trench that went through. And you will see that it just nicked the end. It turns out in this case, it actually took off the feet of this particular soldier that was there. But keep in mind, when they started the excavations, even then, they, no one was expecting to find complete sets of soldier remains. Because I've read a lot of books about the Civil War. I'm sure lots of folks in this room have read and written lots of books on the Civil War. And I have never read an account of soldiers' complete bodies being put into the same pit, commingled would be the term we would use, into a pit of amputated. You hear of pits of limbs, and you hear of soldiers being buried. You don't expect to find them in the same place. So even when this excavation was starting, the work actually started down here near the legs is where the unit went in. And so the thinking was, okay, well, here's three legs. We have, we've found it. Well, then the excavations continued, and those, those shin bones became knees and became femurs and became a pelvis. And all of a sudden, the realization was, we're not dealing just with amputated limbs. We have complete sets of human remains here. And that, that changed the whole dynamic of this situation. And so I'm going to... I'm going to walk over, and I'm going to walk over here as well just to point a few things out. So what you have here is one complete soldier right here. We refer to this gentleman as Burial One. This is the soldier that, as you're facing, is on the left-hand side. Uh, and you can see that he has some rather significant trauma to his upper femur right there. That is not accidental. That is, that is a wartime injury that we're going to spend a great deal of time talking about here this evening. And then you can see next to him the beginnings of what we refer to as burial two. You see the same thing in this photograph next to it. You can see their legs down here. I'm going to walk over to this side of the room. If you look at the other image, it's difficult to see in the lighting, but where this archaeologist has her hand down, right in this corner here, this upper right-hand corner of the right-hand image, this is a pile of feet that have been amputated, in most cases around mid-shin, in some cases closer to the femur. So you have complete sets. And keep in mind, you, you, you're seeing here half of the soldier. You don't see the rest of him. And then parts of these limbs are actually on top of his, uh, his left, excuse me, his left shoulder. So this was all jumbled together here in the ground. And in a day, we had to kind of decipher what exactly was going on and, and what are the next steps that we should take. 
And so the decision was made, this is typical, the decision was made to remove what we had discovered thus far from the ground. And the reason for that was, there's a few reasons. As I mentioned, this was incredibly shallow. This is 10 inches below the ground. Um, if you were to simply throw dirt back on top of this after taking some photographs, um, because of the soil conditions, because of the shallowness, the experts at the Smithsonian advised us that in all likelihood, these remains would, would deteriorate, disintegrate within five years or so. They would go away. I can also attest the soil conditions were very, very poor. Um, based off of the acidity in the soil and whatnot. Um, this was some of the poorest preservation I have personally seen excavating both burials as well as just on, on battlefields throughout Maryland, Virginia, elsewhere, West Virginia. Um, the preservation, the, the bone was in very, very poor condition. And so we feared that by just exposing this, we had destroyed it. And so we made the difficult decision to go ahead, not excavate any further areas that you see, but to move from the ground what we had there. So before we did that work, we did lots of documentation because to figure out the most we could about these soldiers, we needed very critical information about their age and their height and their race. And you can determine a lot of that by looking at the bones, at their lengths. And we were very concerned that these bones were going to simply fall apart when we took them out of the ground. And so a lot of time was taken documenting them, taking these measurements so the Smithsonian scientists could go back to the lab and decide that somebody was five foot seven and between 32 and 34 years old. That was all very critical information, some of which was discovered in the field. So with that, we will move on to talk a little bit about the lab analysis that we did because we had a lot of questions. As I started off, Manassas is the site of not one but two battles. Were these soldiers from the first battle or from the second battle? Were these Union soldiers? Were these Confederate soldiers? Were they both sets? How did this site come to be a field hospital? Was this a position that was overrun? Why were these soldiers put into the same pit as amputated limbs? Was this done in haste? These were a lot of the questions that we had. And unlike on TV shows like CSI, you can't figure this out in a 60-minute episode. Um, this took us quite some time and was the reason why we didn't publicly start talking about this discovery until about two and a half years, or really three years, after we made the discovery. Because we wanted to have as much information as we could to present to the public, and we wanted to see if there was any realistic chance to determine who these soldiers were so we could try to reach out, if we could, to descendant family members. So we did a significant amount of analysis in the lab. And so with that, now we're gonna start to get into some scientific stuff, which is really, really interesting. So burial one. Burial one is the soldier that you saw that had the significant injury to his right upper femur. He was the one laying on the right-hand side of those images. Burial one, we know from the way his bones formed and the heads of the bones and whatnot, we know that he was between 25 and 29 years old, which, believe it or not, was actually slightly on the older end of the average age of Civil War soldiers. We know that he was five foot seven. So again, that's from taking these measurements of these key bones and making estimates as to his height. We also know that he had a fairly muscular build. He wasn't some skinny, scrawny dude like me. He actually was not heavy, but he was a well-built person, well-built individual. So 
Scientists, can they, they can look at the way the bone has formed and the facets on the bone, the muscular attachments to the bone, and they can make assessments about the muscle mass that was attached to those bones. And so they know that this was a, a fairly well-built individual. They know that he was likely from upstate New York or New England. Well, how the heck do they figure that out? He, he didn't have a sign on, he didn't have any buttons on him that said anything like that. So this is when it gets pretty incredible. So, there's this neat technology that I'm not going to pretend to explain, but it's called isotope analysis. And for isotope analysis, you take a very, very, very small fragment of bone, and you have to, it is destructive, you have to, pul you have to pulverize it a little bit, you do a chemical analysis, you shoot lasers at it, you do all kinds of stuff, and you can find out, among other things, where that individual was drinking their drinking water as they were born and growing up as a kid and as an adolescent. Because everywhere in the world, the groundwater has different mineral signatures in it. And there are these nifty maps of the entire world that tell you the signatures of the groundwater where that place is. And so we know that this individual, with a great deal of certainty, when he was growing up, was drinking his drinking water in New York or New England. In fact, we know from both burials and all of the 11 amputated limbs that we found that all of them were from the northern United States, really New York, New England, maybe northern Pennsylvania. It's a lesser probability. These, these were Yankees. There's no question about it. One of them potentially showed a signature of being from Ireland. Uh, which, again, not a huge surprise for the American Civil War. But the, these were clearly soldiers who were drinking northern water when they were growing up as kids and adolescents. So it's pretty incredible that you can do that. But you, you can't, do that, can't do that overnight. That takes a little bit of time. The soldier was wearing no discernible clothing whatsoever. So one explanation was, it was the soil conditions were very, very poor. So things like bone buttons, uh, ivory buttons, things like that, they, they shell, they, they probably would have disintegrated. But copper military buttons should have still been there. Tin buttons on their trousers and underwear should have still been there. So this, this soldier was stripped of his clothes at some point. Now, it was incredibly hot, especially in the days following really both of the battles. And so... At some point, probably everything but his undergarments was stripped off of him to make him as comfortable as possible. So we really didn't know for certain from what he was wearing was he Union or Confederate. But again, that isotope analysis really kind of seals the deal. He had a British-imported .577 caliber Enfield rifled musket bullet embedded in his femur, not passed through, stuck in the actual bone. So that's really significant. Significant for the soldier because it's what killed him. It's significant for us because that narrows down for us that this was almost certainly a casualty of the Second Battle of Manassas. British Enfield rifled muskets were a type of weapon that was imported in by both North and South as, uh, as one of their primary weapons during the Civil War, but Virtually none of these had been imported in time to make it here for the first Battle of Manassas. But by the time the second battle had been fought, 
about 100,000 or more of these weapons had been imported into the United States. And they were the primary weapon being used throughout the war by the Confederates. And they were the number two weapon used by the Union. But this bullet probably could not have been here in time to be fired in the first battle. So that told us that we were dealing with a casualty from the second battle. Um, before I talk more about the bullet in this wound, it's also important to m mention that both of these soldiers, again, remember how shallow they are. This was an agricultural setting. There was plowing being done for decades afterwards. A significant portion of his body was damaged by plowing. A portion of the pelvis was damaged, and his entire skull was missing. And in the field, we took that very we, we weren't sure if we were dealing with a soldier who had been decapitated in battle. Um, but it, we dug a great deal looking for the skull. We did not find it, but we did ultimately find, I believe, five teeth in the location of where the skull had been. So at some point, that skull was picked up by a plow and dragged, crushed, and is likely uh, not able to be found at this point. Um, but the remainder of the body was, was intact. So with that, we're going to talk a little bit more about this horrific wound that this individual suffered. So... This is an image of his right femur, the upper, upper right where it goes into your hip socket. And you will see both in the actual photograph and then in the radiograph to the to side there, uh, that actual bullet that impacted and stuck in the bone. This is not normal. Normally when, certainly in modern military, very high velocity weapons, but even during the Civil War with these very large projectiles, these would hit the bone and they would keep on going. And you're going to see a lot of pictures later on of injuries caused by bullets that kept on going. But this bullet had two things happen to it. First, it struck some of the densest bone on the human body. The head of your femur right up there, that is incredibly thick, dense bone. So it, it, it acted to stop it. But another reason is that it had just started to lose some of its momentum. It did not go in nose first or head first. The point of that bullet is not what went into the bone. It went in sideways. You can, again, barely make that out in this image here. Something caused that bullet to go in sideways, lose a little bit of velocity, and just barely slow down as it went into this soldier. And where this soldier was shot, there is no way to sugarcoat this. This soldier was shot in his rear end. This bullet would have come in probably right around here. So again, the head of your femur, you know, that, that's pretty high, right? That's coming in right around here. And this bullet came in about three inches below the head of the femur. But because that bone was so dense, that bone didn't break right there. It created this horrific fissure through his leg, and then it blew apart his femur right around here where my wallet is. Uh, and blew his, his, his leg into pieces with the bone staying there. This would have obviously been immediately a debilitating, and in his case, fatal wound. This would be very close today to still being a fatal wound. So again, at the Smithsonian, they did a significant amount of work in modeling to figure out about this projectile. So you can see here, this is what's called a micro-CT scan. So think of it when you go to the doctors and you get a CAT scan. This is like a CAT scan on crack. This thing can do, this is like 100 times the level of detail as your typical doctor's office CAT scan. 
and they can do all kinds of neat things. They can look for hairline fractures in the bone. They can take the bone apart. They can put it back together. They can remove the bullet, all kind of in a virtual sense, and trying to figure out what happened. And so they were able to figure out some pretty interesting stuff about this bullet and the way that it injured this soldier. Again, one thing that they determined was that when this bullet struck the soldier, the way the bone broke, this soldier was bearing the entirety of his weight on that leg. In fact, possibly even more than just the weight of his body resting, but so much weight as if he was like this at the exact moment he was shot. And that extra weight of him putting his body weight on it caused the bone to break, and a little fragment of bone broke off in just the right spot that these scientists who do this on a daily basis could say right away he was bearing a heavy load on that leg at the exact moment that that round hit him in the rear end. And so it is quite possible, based off of where we found this discovery, and based off of the types of wounds that we saw in these other soldiers, and based off of what caused some of the greatest casualties in the Second Battle of Manassas, that this was a soldier that was running away, retreating from the Confederates, firing upon him at a part of the battle called the Deep Cut. The Deep Cut is the Second Manassas version of Pickett's Charge, except it's reversed. This is a case where you have an entrenched Confederate position. It was in a place called the Unfinished Railroad, which again is exactly what it sounds like. This was a railroad venture that was explored, begun to be excavated in the 1850s, five years before the Civil War. They wanted to make a shortcut in the railroad. They started digging. Railroads are supposed to be flat. They don't like hills. And so they start digging, in some places, a massive trench, a big cut, other places, a large fill. This runs for miles across the landscape, and the Confederates know this is here because they fought on this same ground 13 months earlier during the first battle. And so Stonewall Jackson decides he is going to place his defensive position along this ready-made, like World War I-esque trench running across the landscape and make the Union come to him. And so on the third day of the battle, after New fits and starts and small battles and really just regimental level and brigade level charges, finally an entire corps and then two-thirds of another corps make a charge at the deep cut. Union soldiers charging up to 600 yards across completely open ground. Seven to 9,000 Union soldiers charging with the entire Confederate army under Jackson entrenched in this position and with somewhere in the neighborhood of about 30 or 40 cannon shooting at them across this open ground, they make a very futile attempt. Some of the men make it up to the trench and then they are forced to retreat. No reinforcements come and the Confederates keep the fire up the entire way during the advance and the entire way during the retreat. And there are many accounts of Union soldiers being shot as they retreated. In fact, to give you a sense of how significant and terrible this fighting the deep cut was, there, some of the Confederate soldiers who were in this trench shooting on the attacking uh, Union infantry were the exact same soldiers who a year later advanced as part of Pickett's charge. And they said that what these Union soldiers advanced through against them was worse than what they themselves had to charge through at Pickett's Charge. So this was an incredibly bloody infantry charge across open ground, and we know soldiers were retreating. 
being shot as they retreated. It is possible that this individual was running away and was shot potentially from some distance. An Enfield rifled musket was actually sighted up to 1,100 yards. Excuse me, yeah, yards. That's, that's Civil War, that's crazy. Now, I'm not saying that you could hit a man-sized target at 1,100 yards, but two, 300 yards, you stood a pretty good chance. And so with these rifle bullets, again, this is relatively new technology during the Civil War, they're spiraling. For those of you who aren't familiar with, with weaponry, think of it like throwing a football and that spiral in the football. It's very, very accurate. And so you could keep up a fire on these soldiers the entire way they were retreating. This soldier could have been shot from 50 yards away, but he could have been shot from 350 yards away. The Enfield was a very versatile, potentially long range. So we know that the soldier was bearing a significant amount of weight when he was shot in his rear end. But again, something caused that bullet to spin. That bullet hit something before it went into his body. And so to learn about my hypothesis for how that happened, we're gonna look at one of my favorite Civil War photographs because it was taken at Manassas Battlefield immediately after the war. This is a photograph taken in June of 1865 at the dedication of two of the first monuments dedicated to soldiers killed during the Civil War. One for the first battle, one for the second battle. These are soldiers that you're seeing here who had recently participated in the Grand Review, the big parade down Pennsylvania Avenue, and were soon to be mustered out. The reason I'm showing it to you tonight is because it is a great view of their backsides of hundreds of Civil War soldiers. And you can see on it all of the gear and stuff that goes on back in here. And so you see things like blanket rolls and canteens. What may be very difficult to make out though in this slide is over kind of the right knee area, the kind of just the upper part of the buttocks right here. If you look very carefully, you might see this picture, these shiny discs. Here's one, here's one, here's one here. These are the cartridge box plates in the cartridge box. The cartridge box is where the soldier carried 40 rounds of ammunition. And again, it rested right here, kind of hanging down the bottom of it would have been right here. And so I think there is a high likelihood that this Confederate fired Enfield rifled musket bullet struck that soldier's cartridge box and then spun sideways into his rear end into his femur and went in sideways and was forever lodged into his leg until it was removed from the ground by the National Park Service over 150 years later. The reason I hesitate is because it was ultimately removed from his leg. As alluded to in the movie that I showed, we did ultimately bury these two soldiers at Arlington National Cemetery. Um, prior to doing so, and in consultation with the, uh, the Army and the staff of the cemetery, um, they said that uh, they were not interested in the artifacts that were found with these soldiers, with the projectiles, with the buttons. And so the difficult decision was made to go ahead and extract the bullet from the soldier's leg to use as a teaching tool and as an incredibly powerful artifact of a piece of lead that took a soldier's life. 
And so here is that bullet, and you can see this is the tip of the bullet, this is the base of the bullet, this little sprue hanging off the top, this piece hanging off the top, is just a piece of soft lead that kind of curved around the leg uh, as it exited the body. But one of the most significant parts of looking at this bullet was something that we did not expect. And this is the side of the bullet that was embedded, stuck in the femur. It's difficult to see, but you may be able to see kind of a cross-hatch pattern running across this, a very fine pattern. This bullet has permanently been impressed with the kersey fabric, the trousers that the soldier was wearing. This bullet took a piece of his pants and shoved it into the wound and hit his femur so hard and with such force that it permanently made a stamp of his own trousers into the bullet. That's, that's pretty incredible. But it was not incredible for the soldier. This is what killed the soldier. Um, this was a wound that would be difficult to treat by today's standards. The only way to treat this wound during the Civil War time period would be to do what is referred to as a disarticulation amputation. Think of it as a hip replacement with no replacement. This is taking everything out from the ball of the, you know, the, right out of the socket, and that's it. There were only a handful of hospitals in major urban cities like New York, Philadelphia, D.C. that could even perform this type of an amputation during the Civil War. For this to be done in the field, in a battlefield that was overrun by Confederates with no medical supplies was impossible. And so the surgeons looked at this soldier. This soldier was taken to this hospital alive. If this soldier had been killed where he fell, we would not have found him at the site. We know this was a field hospital, right? We found 11 amputated limbs at this site. And we now know from documentation, sure enough, this location was the site of a Union field hospital. So this soldier was brought to this hospital, and a surgeon had to look at this soldier and tell him that there was nothing they could do for him. We think that the soldier probably did not bleed out. He probably, his femoral artery may have somehow not been completely severed by this wound, because if it had, he would not have made it to the hospital. This soldier lived possibly for days in excruciating pain before, in the 90-degree heat, he died, and his body was mixed in with amputated arms and legs. So burial two. We also know a great deal about burial two. He was a little bit older. We know that he was between 30 and 34 years old. Now, for Civil War, especially enlisted men, it's actually getting kind of old. I don't like to admit that anymore, but that's getting pretty old. So because of the age, it actually starts to narrow down possibilities of who the soldier could be. And we'll get to that in a moment. Um, he was a little shorter, about two inches shorter than burial one, a little less muscular as well. Uh, and he had evidence of what's called a pipe facet. If anybody has studied, uh, looked at skeletons from more the colonial era, you'll know what a pipe facet is. There were lots of smokers historically in the 17th, 18th, 19th century, and they would frequently smoke hard clay tobacco pipes. And when you smoke a pipe, you usually smoke it in the same, you don't smoke it over here, you smoke it in the same spot all the time. And chewing down, biting down on that pipe, day after day for years, 
actually carves a slight circular groove in your teeth that wears it down. And you can see some pretty extreme examples of this on the, the teeth of colonial settlers. But um, this gentleman had a very slight evidence of a pipe facet. So we know it's just a, it's an interesting characteristic. We know that he was a, a frequent pipe smoker by seeing this rounding of his teeth. We also know, as I mentioned before, that he was likely from upstate New York or potentially New England. He was wearing a good bit more clothing. Um, we found on him uh, all four buttons, and I'll get to this in a moment, of a what's called a four-button sack coat or a Union infantry blouse. This was a very, very common kind of fighting fatigue jacket that was uh, worn by Union soldiers by the time of the second battle. The first battle, this would have been a very new, relatively rare issue item. There were some regiments that wore these during the first battle, but only a handful. Whereas by the time the second battle came along, most infantry regiments were wearing these four-button sack coats. And we know from the exact positioning of these buttons, it's exactly what it was. He was wearing his jacket. His jacket was not removed. And I'll get into that reason in a moment as well. He had three 31 caliber buckshot embedded in his body. He also had a site where a round ball, 65 caliber, had passed through his right shoulder. This is all very significant. The wound through the shoulder, we could tell in the field that his right shoulder, shoulder was significantly damaged. But what we didn't realize until we got to the lab was that it, a bullet had actually passed through the, the shoulder, and that's this round ball. These three 31 caliber buckshot were recovered, one also in his shoulder, one in kind of the thick of his calf, and one in his groin. So this soldier was shot with four different projectiles. But it's significant because they are what is called buck and ball. So I talked about rifle muskets earlier, the Enfield, what killed Burial One. The other common type of projectile, especially for the first half of the Civil War, really kind of up until Gettysburg, was smoothbore muskets. This was technology, really, that had been around for centuries at this point. This was not rifling. These were fairly inaccurate, large caliber muskets. They only had a front sight on them, and they were really only accurate to about 65 yards or so to hit a man-sized target. And so to increase your chances of hitting somebody, you usually didn't fire just one round. It was a prepackaged round that had three 31 caliber buckshot and one 65 caliber round ball all together with the thinking that perhaps one of them would hit someone. And even if one of those buckshot hit you, it would probably disable you. It may not, it could kill you if it hit you in the head, um, but it would probably not kill you instantly. It would disable you. And in some ways, disabling a soldier was even better because then somebody else had to try to drag him off the battlefield and take care of him. And so this soldier had three buckshot and a round ball that passed through his body. So that means a couple of things. That could mean that he was shot with a single pull of the trigger at very close range, within 50 yards for this dispersal. Or he could have been shot in a volley. You know, he was certainly shot, he could, if it happened in a volley, it was all at once. Um, and maybe one round ball and a buckshot from one gun hit him here and here, and then two buckshot from somebody else hit him here and here. But these were 
all been, this isn't like, you know, just a minor wound. You would have gone down when one of these hit you. So it was either all at once. I tend to think quite possibly it was all at once. And he was shot potentially while advancing or facing somebody. And this, this soldier was not crouching down, right? You've got his shoulder, his groin, and his leg all hit at the same time. This is not somebody that's in a defensive position. This is somebody who is out in the open, either advancing, retreating, standing there, firing, or something like that. And so, again, good evidence that this could potentially be from this charge of the deep cut. Some of these units, these New York regiments, made it very, very close to, uh, to the Confederate position. Portions of the body were disturbed by plowing, again, but not nearly to the level uh, of, of burial uh, one. And um, research does point to a fairly limited number of candidates for this person. I'm going to leave you hanging with that for a quick second and talk a little bit more and just show you a little bit about what was found. So these are the four actual buttons from this soldier's uniform jacket. Uh, and then you see two of the three buckshot sitting there in that photograph. The third one was highly deformed when it hit uh, the bone, I believe, in his shoulder. And so these are the four buttons. And then you have an image, modern image, of yours truly trying to kind of recreate what happened and the positioning of this, of this jacket. Again, this soldier was found wearing his jacket. He was also wearing his trousers. He had uh, buttons, I believe, around his waist and around his neck from, he was fully closed because he had been struck multiple times and his wounds were so incredibly painful that they didn't dare try to even get his clothes, especially his jacket off of him. We think what they may have been trying to do was use his uniform jacket almost to immobilize the wound. If you take your jacket and kind of take it down and wrap it a little bit like that, it almost tucks your shoulder in a little bit. And the only way we could recreate the exact pattern of these buttons in the ground was to partially take your jacket off and wrap it around your shoulder. And sure enough, those buttons would lie exactly in that position. It's a hypothesis. We don't know for certain, but it's possible that they tried as they carried this soldier to the hospital to immobilize him, use his own jacket to, to wrap that wound. So again, the limited number of possibilities for who this soldier could be. When we transferred the two complete sets of remains to Arlington National Cemetery for burial, we had done a significant amount of research. Again, this is a battle that had, the second battle had about 3,200 soldiers killed in it. And we really felt there was a low likelihood that we were going to be able to pin down who this soldier was. Well, we put some press out uh, when we made this public in June of last year, prior to their burial. And we were inundated by phone calls and emails because turns out people who are into the Civil War are really into it. And they like doing research. That's probably some people in this room. And so we started getting contacts from people who said, you know what? I think that that could be, that might be my, that might be my great, great grandpa. Because he was shot, wounded at the Second Battle of Manassas, taken to field hospital, and he was never found again. Um, we had a volunteer researcher reach out to us, a grad student, who was off for the summer. And he decided, in his spare time, to pull every single casualty record for a soldier who was killed. Um, we didn't give him location, but we listed all of the brigades that we thought these could be candidates from. And in looking at this information, and then 
eliminating anybody who wasn't 30 to 34, who wasn't born in the New York, New England area, who wasn't around five foot five or so. Ultimately, in working with park staff, was able to determine, I should say narrow down, from the sample that he looked at. Now, we don't know. It could be somewhere outside of that sample. But from the thousand or so records he looked at, narrowed it down to two people. And one of them was a captain, Jeremiah Washburn, in the 17th New York. Um, I tend to think that it is unlikely him because he was a captain, and this soldier was found wearing an enlisted men's sack. Now, to be clear, officers sometimes would wear enlisted gear, especially later in the war, a little less so this time in the period of the war. There's another candidate, though, who is a Sergeant Nathan W. Nash of the 12th New York. And he fits all the descriptions. And his widow filed a pension claim. And his widow's pension includes a letter from his widow saying that he, she heard, and I think there's a letter from somebody in the regiment as well, that he was severely wounded, taken to a field hospital where he died the next day and his body was never recovered from, he was buried at that field hospital and his body was never recovered. So it's a possibility. Don't know. Turns out, when we thought we had exhausted all attempts at researching, there's people out there who have some amazing resources who spend a little bit more time. Again, we don't know. We will continue doing research to see if we can solve this puzzle. What we do have a little bit more information on, though, believe it or not, are the amputated limbs. And we're going to wrap up our discussion tonight by talking about those limbs and what we've discovered and why is it that we might be able to find out more about those limbs than those two soldiers. So again, we uncovered 11 amputated limbs, 10 legs and one arm. You have an example of one here, and these are devastating wounds. What you're looking at here is a, uh, is a femur that has been amputated very, very high. The higher you amputate, the lower the likelihood of survival. The higher the chance of infection as you get closer to the core of the body. Also, if it does get infected and you had your hand or your foot amputated and that wound gets infected, well, they could amputate a second time and work their way up the limb. In this case, this soldier experienced a horrific wound to, I believe, his right upper femur where this bullet came in, I'm gonna step here, move to the other side. This bullet came in from the side, would have entered probably right around here, blew apart the lower part of his femur and then exited through here. So again, the wound came in very high right here, caused great damage then came out on this side. There was so much damage caused, first you can see how many pieces of bone it, it, it broke as it went through. And you can also see fairly clearly the entrance in the exit wound. You can see on here, this is the entrance, this is the exit. Again, this is the entrance right here, and this is the exit. And you will also notice numbers of bone pieces that are simply just missing. The, these bone pieces literally would have just been expelled. They would have been flying. When this bullet passed through, bits of bone and flesh would have continued going through the air. This amputation is so high, we can tell that the surgeon had no choice. You would never want to amputate that high if you didn't have to. But when you do an amputation, you need 
clean, strong, undeformed bone and soft tissue and tendons and muscle to be able to put that soldier's leg back together and tie it all up. And so the surgeon would have amputated lower if he could have, but the height of this tells us that there was a significant amount of soft tissue, tendon, other damage that was done, forcing him to, to amputate basically almost at the level of the groin. And so this is a close-up of, uh, of the entrance wound of, of that particular soldier. I'm just using this one bone as an example of the 11 that we have. And again, you can see the entrance and what may be very difficult to tell here, but you can see some red circles here. These red circles are highlighting, this is an x-ray, little flecks of lead from the bullet that were still left behind in the soldier's leg. So we know quite obviously from the circle, but also from the lead fragments, that these were bullet wounds, not shell fragments. We can also learn a good bit about the skill level of this surgeon. And this is close-up views of the amputated femur, I believe the same one we were just looking at. And you can determine a great deal. You can look at the images to the left and the center, and you can actually see the individual striations, the individual cut marks from this surgeon. So you can even estimate how many strokes of the saw it took to cut this leg off of this soldier, and possibly even how long it took. These were relatively quick amputations. They, they tried to get it done as quickly as possible. The actual cutting through the bone may have been 45 seconds or so to go through and cut through that bone. Um, we also know that this was a highly skilled surgeon because we can look and we don't see what are aptly called false starts. The best analogy, and it's, I'm sorry, the best analogy I can give is if you're out at the wood pile and you're cutting a piece of wood with the saw and you're cutting and you're just trying to get it going and you, it's got to get in that groove before you start working it back and forth. And so if the surgeon's having trouble, either the patient's moving around or they're shaking and they're nervous, that, that saw is going to leave a couple of initial marks on the bone before it sets into that groove. We didn't see much or any of that. What we also saw were relatively small features. This is a very descriptive term. It's called a terminal snap. That's this piece here, this piece here. Again, this little piece down here. Going back to my unfortunate woodpile analogy. You're cutting a piece of wood, you get almost all the way through, and then the weight of what's left comes off, and then there's a fragment of bone that does not cleanly cut, but it just rips and breaks off. Believe it or not, this is a pretty small terminal snap. So this shows that the surgeon had a great deal of control as he was working through that bone to make it almost all the way through before it was, it was completely cut. And I, I want to give a lot of credit here again. We have learned a great deal. I did not know a lot of this before we got into this. I knew a bit of this. But we have learned a great deal from our partners at the Smithsonian, the Museum of Civil War Health and Medicine, um, have helped us out tremendously with understanding how these wounds were cared for during the Civil War. So we know that this surgeon was pretty highly skilled performing his amputations. We think we could know who the surgeon is. 
there was a surgeon, Captain Benjamin Howard. You see his image here. And we know from his logs that he was stationed after the battle in the general vicinity of where this discovery was made. And we know from his records that he, for this battle, was deemed effectively to be a leg specialist. He recorded, I believe over the course of a couple of days, 15 leg amputations. And again, we've got, we've got 11 total, 10 legs, and then an arm. And he recorded in great detail the soldiers identifying information, their, you know, their name, their company, their unit, the day they suffered the wound, a description of the wound, where he amputated it, you know, distal end of the right femur, to here and there. It's very, very descriptive. And thus far, many of the legs that we have found in this pit match his records. And so it is possible that we have found Captain Howard's field hospital. And so, if that is the case, we have 15 names that go with these, with these legs. And so we may, not even doing DNA analysis, may be able to start going through and narrowing down and figuring out who some of these individuals were. Again, we've got members of the public reaching out to us and saying, my great-great-grandpa was wounded through the leg, had his leg cut off at Second Manassas. We even still have his wooden artificial leg because he lived another 70 years and was a farmer. Um, how neat would that be to be able to match up the original leg and then the artificial limb of the same soldier. Really, really neat. Again, don't want to degrade the horrible wounds that these soldiers suffered, but it's a fascinating teaching tool and a way for us to teach about and show people the horrors of the Civil War and the efforts that were went to to try to save these individuals. So, in conclusion, as has already been mentioned, these soldiers were buried at Arlington National Cemetery about a year, little, little over a year or so ago. Um, the Park Service staff had quite a connection to this find. Um, we are charged with stewarding these resources in perpetuity. And just as these, particularly these two soldiers, lay and rest undisturbed on the battlefield for over 150 years, we thought it was important to send a, a piece of the battlefield with them. And so we had a large storm that came through and a historic 100-year-old oak tree in the battlefield was toppled. And so our staff milled that wood and created two Civil War-style tote pincher puffins that those soldiers now rest in in Arlington National Cemetery. Rest, uh, they were also wrapped in reproduction U.S. Army Civil War blankets inside those soldiers similar to if they had ever received a proper burial during the Civil War. And again, they are buried at Arlington, and the main reason for that is the precedent. At Arlington Cemetery is the tomb of the Civil War unknowns. This is the burial site of 2,111 primarily Union soldiers that were buried. They had been exhumed from Manassas Battlefield and some surrounding lands in 1865 and 1866. Now, the Army did not want to put these two soldiers directly into that kind of crypt, but they did create these soldiers their own burial spot. They are buried together on top of each other in a single grave where they are currently marked as two own U.S. soldiers. And we will see if potential research um, gives any more information as to who they or any of the other soldiers could be. 
So with that, I appreciate the opportunity to be able to share this story. I imagine some questions. And so for that, I'm going to turn it over to Carl, who's going to help MC some of the questions. All right, ladies and gentlemen, a big round of applause before we start with Q&A. We, we only have uh, a few minutes to get just a couple questions in. So would anybody like to start us out with just a few questions? We'll go right here in front to start off with. How typical was a 10 inch pit? Or was this, how do you know it wasn't eroded over the 100, ensuing 150 years? And, uh, you know, can, can we assume that this was typical? Yeah, so I would say for hasty battlefield burials, this is certainly not atypical. We do not think there was significant erosion that took place. We think this was always very shallow. We have countless accounts. There are even photographs from the Civil War, even from Manassas Battlefield, literally of bones sticking up out of the surface. There are nasty accounts of hogs and pigs rooting up these burials. They were so shallow. Think of the situation after this battle. This was a massive Union catastrophic, lo catastrophic loss. They have fled. Many of these soldiers were not buried until eight days after the battle concluded. And there was a single company, I believe, of Pennsylvania soldiers there doing this. They are probably going to do as hasty, of a, as quick as a job as they possibly could in taking care of this and burying these soldiers. So, no, unfortunately, while there certainly are examples of deeper trench burials during the war, um, very common for a shallow burial to be like this. Uh, yeah, were you able to cross-reference potentially the uh, surgeon's detailed uh, report with burial one or burial two? Yeah, so the surgeon reports largely speak of amputations that were performed, medical treatments that were performed. Burial one and burial two had no medical treatment performed. A surgeon looked at them and decided these soldiers were going to die. And so we don't have or have not located detailed records to the point of a surgeon saying, oh, and I saw 20 other soldiers who I couldn't do anything about. There, there's no specific records that we've located to, to that extent. You mentioned DNA briefly. What are some of the discoveries that are possible with DNA and, and what are some of the problems with using DNA? Great. So yeah, DNA, again, this is one of those CSI things. People think today that, oh, you can extract DNA and all of a sudden put up a picture of what somebody looked like. Um, that, that's simply not the case, at least not yet. Um, so DNA, you have to have comparative, typically matrilineal, so the mother's line, uh, DNA. And so you really can't just take DNA and all of a sudden say, okay, well, we know there were 2,000 Union soldiers killed during the second battle, which one was it? You need to get comparative DNA. So you need to have a very, 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 very small sample size and then start doing some rather significant genealogy to try to look for potential samples to match. That being said, if you can, if, if you can do that level of research, DNA can be conclusive, and in, in these cases, it is highly likely in these dense bones. DNA preserves much better. The best place to find DNA typically is inside a tooth, 
And then the second best is very dense bone, either in the cranium or especially these thick bones like humerus or femurs. And in all these cases, we have, we have obviously, we have, we have those bones preserved. So I would say it is a high likelihood that DNA could be extracted from these remains if we were able to make that kind of uh, you know, detective work, finding a sample size to compare it to. Were the remaining uh, remains, were they interned or are they used for uh, being used for research? So that's a great question. So in reference to the 11 amputated limbs, um, we are working through a very deliberate process to determine what to do. Um, some, uh, some folks, we, so we have to go through a process in preservation called the Historic Pres we have to follow the National Historic Preservation Act. So we have to reach out to consulting parties. And so we're working with the US Army, with the Folks Oriented National Cemetery, with the Smithsonian, with the Civil War Medicine Museum, with the National Museum of Health and Medicine, all kinds of folks, the Sons of Union veterans. And we're trying to decide very deliberately what to do. Do we, as some folks have suggested, um, do the remains get all, do they become cremated and do they be interred into kind of a mass underground crypt uh, at Arlington National Cemetery because of the remains, uh, partial, but remains of American service members? Do they be preserved as teaching tools? Um, there are very large collections of these types of remains that exist today for the purpose of teaching current battlefield trauma techniques. Um, are they left as, um, as, again, teaching tools or for interpretive devices, or I shouldn't say devices, but interpretive um, you know, pieces for us to talk about these horrible wounds? Again, if you're going to do that, you have to do it in a very careful way. right? You're not just going to put someone's leg in a display case. You need to do it in a very, very sensitive way that honors the sacrifice that they made. And so um, we are working through that process. The National Park Service has proposed that some of the more fragmented, uh, less well-preserved remains do be turned over, be cremated, uh, and rest at Arlington Cemetery. But we have also proposed that some of the more preserved legs um, be, at least for a five to 10 year period, um, be held onto for future study, for teaching tools, to potentially see if we can do DNA analysis or, or something along those lines um, to, uh, to identify who these, who these soldiers may be or what their stories were. We also have to figure out, we think there is a high likelihood that there are more remains left in the ground. And what do we do with those? So we're going through this process very deliberately and trying to make those decisions. Thank you for listening to our lecture. The U.S. Army Heritage and Education Center at Carlisle Barracks, Pennsylvania, USA is the U.S. Army's archival collection. To learn more about the Army's history or to plan a visit to our center, please visit us online at www.usahec.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube to learn more about our upcoming events. <laughs>